Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and it is good to see you. I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you're with us. I recognize that maybe some of you are here in town uh, for uh, Thanksgiving. You're just passing through, or, or maybe you're on your way back from Thanksgiving and need a place to worship, and so you stopped on your way. And so I want you to know whether uh, you are a guest, a longtime visitor, a longtime member, uh, we are glad that you're with us this morning as we worship our God and our King. And this morning, the passage we're going to be looking at comes out of Matthew chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 1. Matthew is the first uh, book of the New Testament. And so if you're in those kind of strange names like uh, Zephaniah, you've probably not gone far enough to the back. Um, but if you hit Luke or John, you've gotten a little too far. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are also Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 807. Now, as Andrew mentioned earlier in the very beginning of our service, this is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. Now, here at CTK, we're, we don't make a big deal out of the church calendar, but there are different periods of the church calendar that we observe. Advent, Easter, uh, we will, Good Friday. Um, and, and Advent is historically been that season in which the church has focus for a period of time for four Sundays on the coming of Jesus. It is the, the season of darkness where the light of the gospel, we're preparing ourselves for the light of the gospel to interject into the darkness. And as John 1 tells us, the darkness cannot overcome the light. The light of the gospel, the light of Jesus, that is what we are preparing for. Season of Advent over the next few Sundays. We're going to spend our time looking at Matthew's gospel We're going to spend two weeks in Matthew chapter 1 and two weeks in Matthew chapter 2 as we think about the coming of our Lord Jesus And so if you would follow along with Matthew 1 beginning in verse 1 and I'll read through verse 17 The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amadab, Aminadab, excuse me, and Aminadab the father of Nahashon, and Nahashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azar, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this morning, that as we read these names that sound so foreign and so strange to us, that you would allow us to see that even this is a portion of your word, and that your word is given to us that is good. It is for our good that you have preserved it, and so I pray that you would open our eyes, and that you would soften our hearts, and that you would help me this morning so that the words of my mouth would honor you, and that you would help us all so that the meditations of our spirits would glorify you. For you are our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Over 15 million, 15 million DNA kits have been sold by Ancestry.com. It means over 15 million people have received in the mail a pen-sized tube that they are then to fill with their own spit. <laughs> and then they plug it, they cap it, they cork it, they wrap it up, they sign it. I'm not sure exactly what they do. I haven't done this. But, but they stick it back in the mail and they send it off. And a little bit later, after a little bit of time, after some uh, analyzing is done on that little bit of spit, they get a history, a history profile of, of their history uh, taken just from this little bit of DNA. Since 1996, users have created over 11 million different family trees through Ancestry.com, and there are over 11 billion ancestor profiles that have been created. Last year during uh, November, November 2018, after Ancestry.com had had their greatest month of sales, a record of sales, the CEO said this, the tremendous interest in ancestry DNA as the gift to give this holiday season reinforces the great passion that people have for finding answers to the very human questions of who they are and where they come from. Those are actually really good questions, aren't they? Who are we? Who am I? Where do we come from? Where do I come from? Right? Those are good questions. Those are questions that we all have asked about ourselves, that we've all asked about our history. Right? Those questions, they, they imply that there is a history, right? There is something that we don't know about, a history that we're not aware of, that there are people in our lives, in our ancestry, people that we are connected to that we have never met, right? That we all have a history and, and that there are those who, whose existence prior to our existence was needed to bring about our own existence. Who are we and where do we come from? We all have this history, and for many of us, our own histories, we're kind of interested in it, right? I have an uncle who's all into Ancestry before there was Ancestry.com, and he would send the whole family, family trees, and where Penny Legion came from, and it was Penhalogen, and where it came, and all this sort of stuff. And it's really interesting if it's your history, but if it's not your history, well, it's kind of like the people back in the day, they would have you over and show you slides of their family vacations. Y'all remember those little carousel things, click, 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 and they go up. I mean, I'm dating, that's like even before my time, right? <laughs> but, but you would just get glassy-eyed and you kind of get tired because it's really not your vacation. It's not your history. And so we don't find it all that interesting. 
we quickly lose interest and our minds start to wander. And I imagine that when we read some of the histories in the, in the Bible, some of the genealogies like the one we just read, I imagine that it's very easy for us to allow our minds to start to wander. I imagine it's very easy for us to think this isn't all that interesting, right? You've done the read through the Bibles before, right, in a year, and you, you're doing great. You make it through Genesis, you, you struggle through Leviticus, but you start hitting those genealogies and you start to realize, oh, oh, it's one of those again. And so you just skip a few pages later, right? Maybe you come to Matthew and you're just going to jump down to verse 18 because I, I can't even understand those names anyway. So what's the point, right? We start to do that. Our eyes glance over the names and we move on. Maybe this morning you paid a little bit more attention. You're wondering if I would get the names right. <laughs> and I didn't, but honestly, did you even know if I did or not? <laughs> but seriously... We often approach these sorts of genealogies and we simply think of them as filler, don't we? They're superfluous. But in reality, the genealogies in the Bible, and this one in particular in Matthew 1, are very, very important. It's very important because this genealogy, this history, tells us the line from which Jesus has come. It tells us a little bit about who he is. It tells us that Jesus, just like us, has a history. He has a history, and his history is very important because his history tells us that Jesus is the king. It tells us that he is the king of promise. This genealogy tells us that he is the king of kings, and this genealogy, believe it or not, tells us that he is the king who changes people. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. That Jesus is the king. In those first two, that Jesus is the king of promise and the king of kings, we get from verse 1. When Matthew calls him the son of Abraham and the son of David. Okay, so when we hear the language of king, if you've been around the church, your mind automatically goes to David. Or at least it should, right? Because David was the great king of Israel. And so when we think of king, when we think of royalty, we think of David. And, and we should. That's where our mind should go. But before getting to David, I want us to focus on Abraham. Because Abraham is where the promised king actually begins. The promise of the king to come begins with Abraham. And it begins with his covenant. With the Abrahamic covenant. Because in there we have the king of promise being promised. So, again, if you've been around CTK in particular, you've heard us talk about the Abrahamic covenant because it shows up all over the place in the Bible, right? Sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. And so we're constantly reverting back and looking back at Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 because it's one of the foundational promises that God makes with his people. And the thrust of the Abrahamic covenant is this, that God is going to bless Abraham up, from your land, go to a land I will show you, and I will bless you. And those who bless you, Abraham, will be blessed. And those who curse you will be cursed. But I will bless you and make your name great. And do you remember God takes Abraham out from the tent, and he says, look up at the stars in the sky and try and count them. And we can imagine Abraham going, one, two, 57,900. Oh, I lost count. And then, right, one, two. Right, we can imagine that's what he's doing. And God's saying, what? As numerous as the stars are in the skies, greater will your descendants be. As numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore, you will have more descendants than even that. 
that God's going to bless Abraham and he's going to give him descendants. He's going to bless Abraham so that Abraham will be a blessing to the nations. You see, that is the thrust to which the Abrahamic covenant is moving. It's not to be contained with Israel, but it is so that the nations will be blessed. And the nations will be blessed through a king. In Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abraham, You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. Now, this kings here is referring to kings generically, but then when we move forward, and we see a few generations after Abraham, Israel is now blessing his sons in Genesis chapter 49. He's declaring blessing upon them just before he's going to die. And he speaks to one of his sons, Judah, and he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute come to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay, so what do those words cause you to think about? Staff, tribute, scepter? That is royal language. You see, through Israel's blessing to Judah, they're declaring that from the line of Abraham, there is a king that is going to come. Through Judah, the tribe of Judah, who, by the way, did you notice he's listed in this genealogy? That through Judah, the promise that was made to Abraham will find its fulfillment, and it finds its fulfillment in Jesus that he is the king of promise. And through this king of promise, the nations will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant causes us to think that way, but even the structure of Matthew's gospel. Because Matthew begins with son of Abraham, causing us to think of this covenant, but then Matthew's gospel ends with what? Jesus sending his disciples out into the nations to make disciples of those nations. And so we see that the purpose of Jesus' coming is not simply to be this king of promise, but to fulfill the promise that was made that through this king, the nations would be blessed. He's the king of promise. But Jesus is also the king of kings. So now let's talk about David. And if you only know two things about David, these are the two things you should know. David was Israel's greatest king. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, as great as David was, there was a greater king to come. That there was a greater king, that there was the expectation that David's son would be the greater king to come. And we have this expectation because of another covenant that God made. Because God doesn't just make promises to Abraham, he makes promises to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that one would come from his line whose kingdom would be established, that he would never end, that God's steadfast love would never depart from this king, and that his throne would be established forever. You see, David and all the kings to come after him, like the kings listed in this genealogy, like Solomon and Rehoboam and Uzziah and Ahaz, What they all knew was that the promise of this coming king did not end with them. That there was a greater king that was coming. 
And when Matthew calls Jesus David's son, he's saying that Jesus is that king. He is the king of kings. But it's not just that name, son of David, that that points us to that. It's also the title that Matthew gives Jesus. Look how verse 1 begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, we're very accustomed to hearing Jesus spoken as Jesus Christ. And so it's easy to think very little of it, just kind of pass over it, not think much about it, think it's simply part of his name. But, but Christ wasn't part of his name. It was a title, right? Christ literally meant the one who has been anointed or the anointed one. Christ, that title, is referring to the Messiah. And what's interesting is that there is only one other time in the entire book of Matthew where Matthew calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, and combines those two words as he does in verse 1. It's found in verse 18, part of our passage next week. Every other time in Matthew's gospel that Matthew refers to Jesus, he calls him either Jesus or Christ, or Jesus who is called Christ. But the only times he combines them is right here in verse 1 and verse 18. And by combining them as he does here in such close proximity to calling him the son of David, Matthew is telling us that the Messiah who is promised is Jesus. That the king who is to come, he is here. That, friends, the wait is over. That the wait that Israel had been longing for Right? 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations to the deportation, 14 generations from the deportation to Jesus. All that waiting, it is no more. The king of kings has come. He's the king of kings and the king of promise. But Jesus is also the king who changes people. And this is where we're going to get into the genealogy a little bit more, into those funny names. Because it's in the genealogy that we see that Jesus is the king who comes changing people from sinners into saints. Now, some of the people that are listed here, we don't, uh, we don't know much about, but some of them, we read their names, and we're very familiar with some of their lives, right? Abraham was a great man of faith. Father Abraham, right? He had many sons, right? David was a man after God's own heart. Right? Jacob would be renamed Israel. We hear these names, and we think of all the great and mighty things that they did. Right? The many things that we can celebrate of what they had done, and, and they're truly heroes of the faith. And so we should celebrate what they've done. It's right for us to do that. But, you know, we actually have something in common with these men. That as great as they were, that they're in need of the same thing you and I are in need of. That every one of us are in need of grace. You see, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Maybe you're, you're here because uh, you're, you're here for Thanksgiving and uh, your mom and dad wanted you to come. You're being a dutiful son or daughter or friend. Maybe you're not a believer and you're, you're here. And I just want you to know we're, we're glad that you're with us. We're happy that you're here. And, but, but I imagine that if you're not a believer, you might have this idea that Christianity says that Christians are Christians because they're good. Right? Like, that's, that's how oftentimes the world perceives us, that, that Christians are just Christians because they're the good people, they're the moral people, or at least they're the, the, the virtue-signaling people. <laughs> they do the right things and say the right things and act the right ways, but... 
that Jesus came as the king of promise and the king of kings for the good people. Maybe none of you think that here, but, but I can guarantee you that your non-believing neighbor or your friend or, or your family member, that, that's what they think Christianity is about. Just get good and then Jesus will love you. He came to save the good. But friends, that's not the Christianity of the Bible. That's, that's not what Jesus said. He said himself he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the well. He didn't come for the good people. He came for those who were wandering. He came for the sinner. You see, what we have in common with every name on this list is that we are not good enough, just like Abraham, just like David. That we are not good enough, that what we are in need of is grace. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's, that's some beautiful religious platitudes. But you have no idea what I have done. And you have no idea what I'm capable of doing. And you know what? You're right. I don't know most of your histories. I don't know all of your histories. I don't know all of your past. But what I do know is I do know some of Abraham's past. And Abraham, though he was a man of faith, he also handed his wife over to another man to save his own skin. And David was, uh, uh, excuse me, Jacob was a deceiver. And he tricked his brother. And Rahab, one of the few women who are listed, right? She, she helped the spies and she welcomed them as they came into the promised land. But before that, she was a prostitute. And David, the greatest of the Israelite kings, do you see how he's commented on how he's named in verse 6? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Isn't that interesting? Like, Matthew could have just said, David, who fathered Solomon, who fathered Rehoboam, who fathered and just kept going, but that's not what he did. He said, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's as though Matthew wants us to make sure we remember that David is not just this great king, but David was also an adulterer and a murderer. You see, friends, the point is, is that Jesus, the king, came to change sinners. He came to change those with a scandalous past. He came to save and to change you and me. He came to change us into saints. And if you are trusting in Christ, that is what the Bible calls you. If you are trusting in his work, his life, and his death, and his resurrection, that's what the Bible calls you. The Bible calls you a saint, a holy one. Not because you are morally perfect, but because Christ has changed you. He has made you new. Right? That's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. The old is gone and the new has come. That that's who you are. That that is the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. You see, friends, every name on this list and every person in this room, what we are in need of is the grace that comes through Christ. He changes us from sinners into saints, but he also changes us from those who have been forgotten to those who have been remembered. So notice something else about these names, something I probably don't have to point out to you. It's that we don't really know who these people are, right? I mean, Azar, Zadok, Eliud, Maybe as I was reading these names, you were thinking, well, I don't know who these guys are, but surely there was a class in seminary about genealogy, so Penny has a tome about them, right? <laughs> Y'all, I don't know who those guys are. 
No one does. No one sure. Like, I'm not naming my kid Eliad or, or Zadok or Azar because of their great works, because I don't know what their great works were. And in reality, they probably didn't really have any great works. The reason why they would be forgotten is because they probably didn't really do much to remember. And they probably didn't think they would be remembered. I mean, sure, they came from the line of David, and they would have known the promises associated with that covenant, with that line, but, but you've seen family trees, right? They branch out, and they, 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 they start to spread, and so it's easy to imagine, like, Eliot, he's thinking, well, well, I'm part of this part of the tree, <laughs> right? Like, I, I'm not the good, the, I'm the forgotten part. This is where the, the Messiah is going to come. He's not coming. It's not hard to imagine that, is it? It's not hard to imagine because these were everyday people leading everyday, ordinary lives. Just like us. And yet, though these lives in the world standards would have been forgotten, they're remembered forever. They're remembered forever in this genealogy. Right? Forever, people will struggle over these names. Now, maybe you're saying, well, that's all well, well and good, Penny, but do you notice who isn't on that genealogy? Names like Penny <laughs> and Doug and Carrie and Suzanne. Like, we, we don't see our names on this genealogy, and that's true. Our names aren't there. And it's true that our names probably won't be remembered in 50, 100, 150 years, right? We heard it a few weeks ago. Probably about a month ago in the book of James, in our study of James, right? What did James say? We're here today and gone tomorrow. We're like dust. We're gone. And so even in this place, in this city, right, where we think we've had so much influence over our neighbors or our schools or our coworkers, and in, in a generation or two, our names will probably be forgotten. And that is true. But do you know what else is true? And what is even more important than being remembered in Roanoke, Virginia in 50 or 100 or 150 years is that God remembers us. He doesn't just remember the names listed in this genealogy, but if you're trusting in Christ, he remembers you. Because our names are included in God's book of life. In Revelation 21, when we're told that Jesus will return at his second advent, and he will establish the new heavens and the new earth, that those who will dwell with him for all of eternity are those whose names have been recorded in the book of life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that, that God remembers not only the greats of the past, but he remembers the ordinary, the everyday. He remembers me, and he remembers you. I mean, isn't that incredible? That you are not forgotten, that you are not passed over, but that God forever remembers your name. He remembers you because you are a sinner who's been changed into a saint. He remembers you because of the work of his son. And friends, that changes everything. You know, when uh, Ancestry.com was first getting really popular a few years ago, there was a Time Magazine article written about it. And the author of the, the article, he, he wrote this. He said, um, while it might be cool talking about uh, ancestry, DNA, that kind of stuff. While it might be cool, he asked, does this really have the power to change the way we see ourselves or the world? 
it's a pretty good question. And it made me start thinking about my friend. I, I actually only know one person who's done ancestry DNA. Maybe some of y'all have, and I just didn't know it. But I have a friend, and you know, it is kind of cool. It's pretty interesting. Um, but I have a friend who did it. And, and the way it works is after he sent his spit off, and he get, got analyzed, he got his report. And it tells you the percentage match you have to other ethnicities and other places in the world, kind of where you came from. And so for my friend, it, he's got a 71% match to England and Wales and Northwest Europe. And that's not surprising. If you looked at him, that's what you would think. And, and he has a 23% match to, to Ireland and Scotland. And he has a 4% match to European Jews. I thought that was interesting because I had no idea about my friend's history. Turns out he already knew, so it was no surprise to him. But there was still 2% left over. And there was a 2% match to Cameroon, Congo, and Southern Bantu. And you know what my friend said when he realized that, when he saw that? Well, that's pretty interesting. And that was it. And it is interesting. It is pretty cool. But that knowledge of his history, of his genealogy, it hasn't changed his life one bit. It hasn't impacted how he sees himself or how he sees the world at all. But friends, to know that we're remembered by God, that our names are included in the book of life, well, that does change us. You see, because Jesus came to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, and because Jesus is David's greater son, the king of kings, because of who he is and what he's done, we're now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are members of the royal family. We are sinners who have been changed to saints. We are those who have been forgotten but are now remembered. And we are so because Jesus has come. Because of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for that grace. The grace in sending your Lord our Lord Jesus, your son, to live and to die and to rise again to give us new life. We praise and we worship you for the grace that you have shown on us, that you have turned us from sinners and you have made us into your saints. We praise and we worship you because though the world may forget us, you will never forget us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us, but that you remember us because of the work of your son. And so for all of that, we thank you and we praise you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. And God's people said together, amen. I'll invite this, the ushers and to come forward and we'll take up this morning's tithes and offerings.